pullback. We normally talk about solutions to big problems. I guess that's kind of what we're doing today. I'm Kyla Houston, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh, and we're on a break right now, so. Not like a Ross and Rachel style break. <laughs> yeah, I've actually been, Kristen, I've been recording other podcasts behind your back on our break. <laughs> Oh my goodness. No, um, we're just taking a season break. Uh, you know, you record for three years straight, record and like publish every two weeks, and you're gonna burn out and we both have other things to do. So but we didn't want you all to think we were missing in action. So we're doing like a book club thing during our little season break here. And Kristen is always reading very interesting books. And so she gave me a list of like 50, and she's like, pick one. And I was like, okay, great. So we read a book called The Great Displacement by Jack Little, which I really liked. I don't know if we should start with that. but (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for folks who haven't checked it out yet, um, it is a really good book. Um, It's quite often at like, in the list of like top 10 books you can read about climate change. And I think it really deserves that place for reasons I'm sure we'll get into. What it looks at is it says, look, Climate change is increasing movement. And I think a lot of people know that internationally, but he's looking from an American perspective. And he says, look, America changed pretty fundamentally um, through something called the Great Migration, which was sort of a historic movement of Black Americans from the South um, into the slightly more progressive North. It resulted in a lot of changes in American society, including like the advent of jazz music, um, pretty (laughs) fantastic changes for society, but, you know, some struggles too. Um, And he says, but actually climate change is going to result in a migration that's of about the same magnitude or larger um, potentially than the Great Migration. Um, So he talks about something he calls the Great Displacement because he thinks it's too chaotic to call a migration um, because a lot of times it results from people being sort of ousted from their homes when they burn to the ground. Which, I mean, was the case, I'm sure, for a lot of people during the Great Migration, but this is a little bit more like, it's a little less targeted, let's say. Climate change doesn't care about the color of your skin. So I found this book really difficult to find. Like, it's actually so hard to mm-hmm. find. I couldn't find it in my library. I checked every bookstore in Vancouver. Like, nobody's heard of it. And I, it was so frustrating because, so I ended up listening to the audiobook, which meant I couldn't really take very good notes. So forgive me. But uh, I found it really frustrating that I couldn't find it anywhere because it's so good. It's so good. So like, I don't know if you ordered yours online or what, but like, geez. Louise. No, I, I also went through audiobook. I tried going to a big bookstore a couple of times um, and they do have it on their online inventory, but it's like 40 bucks. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, you have to order it online and I'm such a last minute person that by the time I was ready to order it, it was time for us to record. <laughs> yeah, but I, I honestly didn't mind the audiobook version. I, I don't know whether it was the author himself, but yeah, his voice was very nice. Yeah, it was <laughs> really smoothing. That and like the way he says stuff, you, you, just, you, could just, you feel his frustration in a way that like obviously reading it wouldn't be the same. He's like, this is stupid. Why are we doing everything like this? But he, <laughs> it's not like written into the book that way. It's just like the way he says stuff. I'm like, ah, very excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what are your first impressions of the book, Kyla? 
Uh, the first chapter made me cry twice. So wow. yeah, I was on the bus uh, on my way to or from work. I don't remember now. And it it got me because it the, the book opens with like the story of uh, the Florida Keys, like after Hurricane Irma and just like the people who were affected. And this, what I love about this book is it mostly is told from the perspectives of people who have experienced climate displacement uh, directly, which is something you don't really get anywhere mm-hmm. else. Uh, the news certainly doesn't like, I mean, you, you sometimes get stories from people's perspectives, but this is like their perspectives over months, right? So like you get how they felt like during the hurricane, after the hurricane, and then like years later, like how they're still kind of coping with it if they've decided to leave or to stay. And the very first story is like, there's an eight foot storm surge. This guy is like, been raising a mangrove forest that he's really proud of. And like his his wife ends up di- divorcing him because he he won't leave the the plot of land that he had put so much of his life into, and he keeps trying to like bring it back. But it's like they're in this zone where like it's only a matter of time before something else happens. And like at one point, he ends up like running over his dog, which is what made me cry. And I'm like, oh my god, like it sucks so bad. Like I can't imagine, and it's probably going to happen to. A lot of people I know, certainly nobody in Edmonton, but like people out here on the coast. My grandma lives in a forest fire zone that it's a whole thing. We'll get into it. But anyways, I liked it. I don't know. I'm rambling. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, that point that you were making earlier about the firsthand accounts is a really good one. I found I found it a really helpful book, partially because when we're having policy discussions about things like managed retreat. Um, and like flood insurance, it's often from a very sort of technical standpoint that focuses on like risk and how much is it going to cost and things like that. Um, but this book really adds texture to what it what it means to lose a community, um, because really when you're whether you rebuild or not, something about the community is lost when a disaster happens, but particularly when most people decide not to return. Or when some people decide to return and some people can't afford to return for various reasons, the texture of the community changes and there is a loss of something that was there before. Um, But also when people move, they try to seek elements of that community when they go somewhere else. So to me, it gave me a lot of new things to think about in terms of what happens when people are displaced due to climate change. And I found that really valuable. Like I got, felt like I got a really deep sense of knowledge from that book, um, just from hearing all of the experiences of, of people who have moved. What I really liked about that in particular is this idea that like people don't want to leave their homes. And I think that's a really valuable lesson for like privileged people in the global North to understand, right? Because there's all of this conversation going on right now about like, uh, what are we going to do with refugees? And there's only going to be more climate refugees. And it's like, and people think that like, uh, I mean, this narrative that Donald Trump um, like really made, like, not that it wasn't there before, but that he made really clear to people like you and I, who maybe don't hang out in those circles, is that everyone's like afraid that people want to come here and like, take their jobs and like live their lives. And it's like, first of all, your life is not glamorous. Nobody wants it. And second of all, nobody wants to leave their homes, right? Like it doesn't matter where you are in the world. You don't want to leave your community. It's not a thing that everybody wants. Like, of course, you're going to get some people who want to leave. But like, 
I don't know, I had that feeling. And then I ended up moving after traveling the world, I ended up moving like two cities over. You know what I mean? Like nobody wants to leave their community. And I loved the way this book kind of showcased that in that like the way people were willing to rebuild in some of these really dangerous zones even though like FEMA is like, we'll pay you to leave. And people are like, no, I'd rather stay. And it's like, oh man. And the way that it goes into the details of how poor FEMA is like trying to deal with this stuff is like, we're not prepared for disaster and it's only going to keep happening. Kristen and I are recording this on June 11th as like the week, the last week, New York City and Ottawa were like completely covered. <laughs> yeah. I hope you enjoyed yourself, Kristen, with the fire smoke that was so bad that people are like comparing it to Delhi or Beijing. And it's like, well, first of all, they're not that bad. <laughs> and, and second of all, what does that say about us and like the idea of like pushing our climate apocalyptic problems onto uh, other nations? Like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's a really weird experience because like obviously growing up in Edmonton and having done some disaster assistance stuff, like I'm not new to wildfire smoke. Um but I was sort of like, oh, this is old hat. Um <laughs> talking to people who for whom this was like their first experience of a 10 plus wildfire day. But then I had this sort of like second reaction of like, why am I doing this? Like why am I trying to actively normalize this for people? <laughs> because yeah. it's not something that's normal and we really shouldn't treat it that way. You're just tougher than your friends, Kristen. It's okay. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> not at all. I stayed inside. <laughs> you didn't go for a jog? <laughs> no, although I do know people here who went for like long bike rides, which to me is I made the mistake of going outside in a really bad wildfire zone in 2017. I was um, working with a disaster assistance agency in, in Williams Lake, BC um, during, there's like a really bad wildfire year in BC in 2017. A lot of people don't remember that, but it was a really bad year, um, like historically bad. And I was in a like a five minute evacuation zone when I was there. And so like ash was literally raining from the sky and I wasn't wearing an N95 mask because at the time, like the culture on wearing masks was so much different than it is now. And it fucked up my lungs for like a year and a half. <laughs> so now I'm really careful with wildfire smoke because I know that like, even if you only experience it for a short time, like it does limit your, your cardio for the next like significant amount of time. You can feel it in the same way that if you smoke for a while, your lung capacity gets worse. Yeah. So, I mean, the Great Displacement talks about wildfires a lot and uh, really interesting conversations about um, insurance. I actually really liked the insurance sections whenever they talked about insurance because like, what's the point of it if you can't get it? You know what I mean? And like, also, what's the point of it if everyone has it and you have to pay it out constantly? You know, like, I don't know. I don't know if you actually, did you want to go in, in any sort of order for talking about the book or? No, uh, to be very honest, I read this like a month ago. So yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about for somebody that doesn't, hasn't really been initiated. Oh, to... yeah. <laughs> what is FEMA, Kristen? <laughs> So FEMA is like the emergency management agency for the United States. Um, it's a big state run agency, state being like the federal government. Um, we don't have an equivalent in Canada. In Canada, we tend to contract to nonprofits instead. 
Um, but they do a lot of stuff to do with disaster assistance, including like funding for recovery and stuff. On the insurance side, one of the one of the things that you want to do to reduce risk for climate events is to include risk sharing mechanisms like insurance. So for people that are living in high flood risk areas, you want to make sure they have insurance for that. And, and it's really complicated to get the pricing right because you want the price to be sufficiently high that people aren't building in, in risky areas. Another alternative is just to ban people buying in risky areas. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say you're relying on insurance, you want the price signal to work there. But on the other hand, for people who are currently living there um, and that may have like almost all of their assets in their house and that may not make a lot of money every year, you need for them to either be able to sell their house, which if it's a really high zone, they can't necessarily do. Or the government needs to pay to buy that house, which is another option that the government does sometimes. Or you need to be able to give them like affordable enough insurance. And depending on the level of risk, that can be a really tricky balance to strike. Yeah, the book talks about that. And I think they do a really good job of just showing how complicated it is. Because like, yes, obviously... People shouldn't be buying in new areas that are going to be really like high risk for flooding or fires. But as we get deeper into the climate crisis, that's going to be literally everywhere, first of all. And second of all, what about the people who already live there who want to have like a thriving community? Like a really good example, I think, is New Orleans, right? Which is it has a culture that cannot be found anywhere else on Earth. And when it is flattened by a hurricane and everybody has to leave or rebuild, you completely lose that. And not like, not in a way that like, it's not still there, but it changes overnight, like you talked about earlier, right? And I found it really interesting how there's so much bureaucracy that you have to go through in order to like mitigate a disaster. And like, because, and this isn't just a United States problem, this is everywhere. Like, because, oh no, there's a ton of bureaucracy if you want disaster assistance <laughs> in Canada. Yeah, or just like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like, the thing is, right, that we're not planning to avoid disaster. We're only reacting to disaster when it happens, which means that if you get a disaster where, let's say, Houston has a horrible hurricane, and then like later that same year or the next year, the, you know, the Florida Keys has one, well, now our disaster relief organization is overdrawn and they can't, they don't have like the the capacity to help the people in the new in the new disaster zone. And it's like, it's, it makes the, it makes the people in these zones who already don't trust the government fairly, <laughs> you know, they trust them even less because they keep promising to like help them out. And then the, like no assistance comes. Yeah. And like one of the other elements of the book that I found, this was like my number one takeaway from this book is if you want a climate resilient society, number one priority affordable housing. Yes. Number one priority. Yes. Yes. If people can't go anywhere, like where are they going to go? <laughs> yes. And there's a big problem as well with like, let's say you live in a sort of lower income community. Let's say you even own a house, which puts you in a better position than renters affected by a disaster in a low income community. But there are a lot more challenges for you in recovering to a disaster than for somebody in a higher socioeconomic zone. And part of that is insurance, that you tend to have better insurance if you can afford to have better insurance. Um, you're more likely to have insurance whatsoever. So you're more likely to be able to build. So the story gave us examples 
of people in higher socioeconomic statuses who like actually got better houses as a result of the disaster. They, they, They actually saw this not necessarily as an advantage. Nobody wants to live through a disaster. It's incredibly stressful, huge impacts on your mental health. But they were okay. Uh, whereas there were lots of stories of other people whose situations become drastically worse for various reasons as a result of um, disasters. Either they didn't get the assistance they needed to build their house, or they didn't get enough assistance and so weren't able to, or they were trying to buy in the same neighborhood that they were in. But because of the disaster assistance money that was coming in for these sort of higher socioeconomic areas, it was actually gentrifying the community and it made it impossible for people to move into those areas. And this is like a real problem that we see observed in disaster assistance, that affordable housing tends not to be rebuilt. So like disasters weirdly gentrify a community in a lot of cases, um, and it pushes people into worse housing in worse neighborhoods. So it's a thing that people don't think about a lot. You don't necessarily think disaster assistance, let's make sure we have social housing that's affordable for all and with strong rent controls, but it's actually a huge part of the climate solution, Um, even within a community, but especially if somebody's moving from, like, let's say they're moving from Louisiana to another community nearby, that recipient city also has to have affordable housing. Shows you my, like, lack of knowledge of American geography. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. We're Canadian and we normally talk about Canada. So, like, to our American listeners, deal. We always have to listen to your stuff. (laughs) All right. But, no, but, like, that's a really good point. And that's, like, for the people who, like... There are so many people, especially like in the South, who live like completely off grid, who don't own property, who they like the hoops that you have to jump through to get government assistance. It's like, well, what if you don't have the documentation that the government requires in order to help you? It's just like, oh, well, I guess you're just allowed to die then, you know, like it's stupid. (laughs) Yeah. And if you are a renter, my impression is that there's a lot fewer protections. I'm not totally sure about the American case. And most of the examples in this book talked about homeowners. But in the Canadian context, if you're a renter and you don't have tenants insurance, which is the case for 60% of renters in the country, you're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's very little assistance from you beyond like in some provinces, you'll get cash payouts at the beginning. But it's not like you can apply to these disaster assistance programs that are geared towards homeowners. So there's a huge gap there, I think. Yeah, it's like, oh, you you're not a rich landowner? Well then, who cares about you? <laughs> I mean, I feel like the logic is you can just move somewhere else, but it's really not that simple. No. Um, <laughs> you might have your security deposit built up with a landlord and they may not be able to put you back in the apartment for like 9 months. So where do you go in the interim? Particularly if you live somewhere like Toronto, where the vacancy rate is less than 1%. Or and Vancouver, it's really hard to find. Yeah. 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 You can't find housing that is adequate and affordable. So you end up in a really precarious situation. How you find um, alternative housing right away in somewhere that's that's near your job, you know? Well, I mean, there was a whole... There, there's um, a story about that in the book where a person had to like they kept trying to find housing nearby where they worked and they have kids and they didn't want to like move their kids and they ended up having to move like an hour away or two hours away and then commute to work and then like on top of that um there's a really good example of like Lincoln City uh which flooded twice in three years 
retirees didn't have any insurance because they couldn't afford it. So they had to take a FEMA buyout, but then they had nowhere to move because like you said earlier, homes were getting more expensive just as the layoffs were happening for a nearby like DuPont factory. So like a place that was really poisoning everywhere around it. So it's like, this place is like causing climate change. And then like, and then like just when people need the work, it shuts down, which is like arguably a good thing, I guess. But then what are people supposed to do, right? Like they can't afford anything. And I mean, we all saw this during COVID, right? Like if you lose your job for a month or two, like you can't pay your rent anymore. Anyways, we don't get me started on rent. <laughs> I think we should all just live in co-ops, but whatever. <laughs> no, but I, I think it shows, the book does a really effective job of showing how in the climate era that is going to create much more uncertainty all over, everywhere, nowhere is untouched by this. There are multiple interconnecting systems that like to the extent that they are exclusive um, and that there are inequalities in those systems, it makes it so much harder to make sure people are climate resilient. Housing is a really good example we already talked about. Insurance um, is like a subsector of that that's also really important. But another thing is just like financial security and your employment status. People who are in lower income, more precarious jobs are more likely to lose their job or to have income interrupted during a disaster. Whereas if you're in like a cushy salaried office job, you can work remotely from wherever you evacuate. Or like usually they'll give you some kind of leave, right? Um, so like you don't feel it in the same way as somebody who's in a more precarious job where they need to show up at their shift every single time is going to feel it. And at the same time, like things, things like legal status make a really big difference too. Uh, we saw in the Fort McMurray wildfires in Alberta in 2016 that one of the groups that was most um, adversely affected was temporary foreign workers who were serving as like in a lot of cases, they were like housemaids to wealthier people in the city. Um, and those people didn't want to pay in a lot of cases for them to continue doing housework when they weren't able to be in the house. And that became a really big problem um, because your status is tied to a specific employer if you're a temporary foreign worker. So people are subject to all forms of abuses. So I think it just shows how these different systems stack on top of each other to make people more vulnerable to climate change. And the more you can address those underlying inequalities, the more you can make people resilient overall. And that's good for all of society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Um, and speaking of like self-sufficiency, I, I found, I think one of my favorite stories in the book was the story of like the bayou in Louisiana and the, mm. like the, um, native population that were living there and how like it, it was such a cool story because he told it for, like over the course of like 200 years and he used the names of like people specifically he's like okay so in 1880 a person named this was doing this and then his son was doing that and it carries forward onto the present day and it just tells this really fascinating story of climate upheaval and how it mm -hmm. kind of happens like a frog in a boiling pot so it ended up being like, you know, all these people living out in the bayou in Louisiana were completely self-sufficient. They were living off the land. And then 
the, the federal government found stuff there that they wanted. I think it was oil or natural gas. I don't know. It was something. Yeah, one of them ended up working on an oil boat, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, it's just this story of like how they are. It, it's such a great example of people getting kind of like pushed more and more off the land that they've traditionally lived on to the point where like, yeah, it was oil. And and it's like, not only is it like the federal government now calling the people who've always lived there trespassers and they can't. And it's such a, it's so fascinating the way they tell the story because it's like, oh, well, they just need to go get like a court injunction. But it's like, well, first of all, they almost always are on the side of the white people in in court injunctions. But also like, these are people who live off the land. They don't know how to do that. They've never needed to before. So it's just this story of like generations of people starting to learn how like the colonial system works so that they could play within it. But it's like, why should they have to? They've been there this whole time. And then like, yeah, they end up having to work for the oil companies that are destroying not only, you know, their little neighborhood, but also the entire planet, it turns out. <laughs> well, and also they had traditionally been fishing. And because of, like, climate change as well as, like, pollution from the boats, I think, um, they were really not able to get the same fish yields that they used to be able to. So, like, it undermined their ability to like live their ways of life in such significant ways yeah it was it was shrimping it was shrimping and a, a big part shrimping, of it as there well. we go. yeah so a big part <laughs> i wrote this part down because i thought it was really interesting because like a big part of like not only were they getting less yield but um because of globalization they like shrimp were coming from uh like asia thailand and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. in like in like quantities that they just couldn't keep up with at prices they couldn't beat right so they ended up like which for people who've been listening to our podcast for an <laughs> age and a half will know has a lot to do with forced labor in yeah. the south asian shrimp market yeah yeah, yeah. i've got to do the callbacks kyla <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. It's just like the whole system is fucked, Kristen. <laughs> like, and this book did such a good job of showing specific examples of how that fuckery is hurting people individually. And everyone's story is different, but they're all the same. Yeah, it was a fantastic book. One of the most meaningful books I've read in a while, I would say. Yeah, which makes me really upset that I can't find it like in book form anywhere I go. Like, what the heck? <laughs> like, <laughs> I know it's really wild. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, hopefully, our, uh, we just get a 10,000 listeners on this episode and everyone goes and orders it and then they start carrying <laughs> it because it's so good. Yeah, I don't think we're going to re recommend like go out and read this book immediately for all the books we do in this series, but <laughs> for this one, Go out and read it immediately. <laughs> yeah, and if you if you if you can't if you don't want to order it online, which is like the only way to get it, uh, the audiobook is so good. It's a little expensive, but it's worth it. I really enjoyed it. And it's like a 10-hour listen. I listened on faster speed because I'm a monster. <laughs> so it was a little shorter for me. I wanted to share like a personal story of of what this reminded me of. So I mentioned earlier Oh, I, I'm going through this thing with my grandma right now where like I want her to move because she lives in a 10 acre like she has like a lake that floods her backyard. She Like it's a nice little property sort of, I guess. And um, I mean, grandma's probably listening to this. It's a nice property. Uh, I'm frustrated because it takes so much maintenance and there's no one there with her. And this log home she's in is like 100 years old and it's really cool and like I don't know, it would make really like for a rad B&B &B or whatever, because like 
log homes are in vogue right now, but like as <laughs> a woman in her 70s who doesn't have working thumbs, like it's just a lot for her to do. She needs to heat her house in the winter with like wood. So she chops wood all fucking summer. And I'm like, what are you doing? So I'm trying to get her out of there. And every time I talk to her, she's like, where am I going to go? And I'm like, well, I mean, I live on the coast. And she's like, Kyla, I can't afford to live on the coast. And I'm like, that's true. So my grandma makes like a pension that she gets because she worked at Safeway for a long time. And Safeway had a union when she was there. I don't know if they still do. I hope you guys do. If anyone from Safeway is listening, unions are great. And uh, her pension is like, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it's probably like $900 to $1,200 a month. It's not very much money. So she doesn't have like any money and all of her value is like in her house, which she could turn around and sell for like $400,000 probably, but she doesn't want to live somewhere else. She wants to find somewhere to live first. And it's like, she can't get, she can't get a loan against her mortgage to put a down payment on a new place because she doesn't have fire insurance because fire insurance, the last time she looked at it was like $700 a month. And that was 12 years ago. So like, and she lives up in Williams Lake. So <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. fire insurance would be more than her pension. And it's not like I have any money. So it's like I can't put a down payment down for her. So I'm trying to talk her into like selling the place first and then just living with like me or, or my mom for like a couple of months while she looks for somewhere else. But like it's hard for her because she's lived there for 30 years and yeah. she's never had stable housing before that. And so it's like for her, like this is her home. And so I'm going up there actually in two weeks and we're going to talk about, cause she wants to leave it to the, someone in the family. And I said that like, if it, if it really like matters a lot to her, cause she doesn't feel like, like she feels like it's what she's accomplished. Right. It feels like it's her legacy to like leave this house to somebody. And, mm. and I don't think that's an unusual feeling for people. Right. Yeah. That's like a, a house is so much more than a commodity. It's, yeah. it's your legacy. It's the way you express your culture. It's, yeah, it's so many more things than that. Yeah, well, and my grandma, she's she's pretty switched on. She's like, Kyla, things are going to go to shit. You're going to need somewhere to go. And this place has water. And I'm like, grandma, that's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> she's not stacking the, the wood that she chops next to the house, is she? No, she's not. She's not. <laughs> <laughs> Great job, Kyla's grandma. Good fire safety. <laughs> I think it was in 2017 when the fires were really, really bad. She got like a, a rooftop sprinkler. So, um, and it's like a uh, fire graded, like specifically for forest fires. So like she's set up, but um, it's hard. I just, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's just, it's, that's the story that like so many people are experiencing right now is like, where am I going to go? Right? Yeah. The other thing is that there's a huge problem I assume also elsewhere, but for sure in Canada, that most people are completely unaware that they may live in high-risk areas until something happens to them. So if you are listening and you're thinking, I'm not at risk of any disasters, maybe do some searching. <laughs> uh, just to check, you know, it's good to know, right? In Canada, we don't have like one flood map, but you you should have some local flood mapping you can look at. They they may be of varying types of quality, but, you know, talk to your municipality, see where the high flood zones are. That tends to be like a lot of households are at risk of flooding. And it's not just if you're on the coast. Um, one of the things that climate change is changing a lot is rain patterns in cities. So if you live somewhere like Ottawa or Toronto, 
you might be at what's called pluvial flood risk, which is basically rain-related flood risk. So not being on a coast doesn't necessarily save you. And even if you think there's a bit of a bank on a river, that may not necessarily be all that helpful because sometimes you can have really heavy rainwaters. So look at Calgary, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look at Calgary in 2013 for sure. Or um, Houston, I don't think is on the ocean. I don't know. I'm really bad at American geography, (laughs) but like, like there's really good examples of cities that have flooded badly that are like people never would have thought, you know, I don't know. What's, what's your, uh, what's your plan for uh, if something happens in Ottawa? What, what do you guys have to worry about there? Uh, well, we had a tornado in 2018. I don't know if that's totally common, <laughs> but we, we did. Ottawa's actually had quite a number of disasters recently, which is weird because people here seem to think we're immune, but we've had like 200 year floods in the last 10 years. So flooding, yeah, it's the big one, particularly there are some sort of more rural communities where there's a lot of low income people. Um, uh, who have most of their money in their houses and it's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do if you lose your house and you don't have insurance for whatever happened? And the great displacement does a really good job of pointing out like, we're not ready because it's going to happen. It's already happening. Here are some examples of how these people were affected. What can we do to keep it from being this bad in the future? And we're not doing anything. (laughs) Well, we can't, we don't even have the mechanisms to see the problem. That's what I find so distressing, right? We do not, there's some there are some statistics that um, that are kept on people who evacuate, but we don't really know like to what extent are people already moving because we're increasingly having disasters that happen in certain places like multiple times. Williams Lake is a really good example. Um, like they've been affected by wildfire a number of times in recent years, um, and when that happens, some people do relocate, and <laughs> we have no idea how many. I think like a first priority really is is seeing the problem, seeing where people are moving from and where they're moving to, and then trying to come up with supportive services that can make sure when somebody moves to Toronto because their community flooded, can they find affordable housing? Can they get to a doctor and get the prescription meds they need in a reasonable amount of time? Can they find employment that's going to pay them a living wage? If you can't satisfy those three requirements, we have a really big problem that like is going to become quite obvious eventually, but I think is already affecting many people. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons that my grandma doesn't want to move is she's like, well, it's so hard to find a doctor and she's not wrong. Like it's already really hard to find a doctor in Canada. Um, Not as hard as it is to find housing, but not far off. (laughs) And like, (laughs) I honestly, in I'm in Ottawa. I would say doctor harder than housing here. They're both bad, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. We just don't appreciate the healthcare industry. And it's wild because we literally just are continuing to live through a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But there's like all kinds of runoff problems. If somebody can't get their like diabetes medication when they relocate to a new place or they can't get their like depression or anxiety meds for months and months because they can't access a doctor. There are all kinds of runoff effects that are bad for not only that person, but also for society. And that, yes, cost our emergency systems more. It's, I I don't know, it's like one of many things that are like penny wise, pound foolish. Oh, boy. 
Sorry, this is like my one thing. The one thing we need to fix is <laughs> this is the first thing. <laughs> housing, 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 housing. People need to have somewhere to go. If there's nowhere to go, where are they going to go? Like, it's my grandma makes a perfect example, right? Like, even if she sells her, her house for like $400,000, where is she going to go that she can buy a place for $400,000? Certainly not the coast. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. <laughs> she could probably do it in Edmonton. Yeah, I mean, but then she has to live in Edmonton. <laughs> Sorry, Edmonton. <laughs> She's thinking about it, though. Yeah, we should have said Calgary. We should have said Calgary. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, I mean, she does have family in Edmonton. Like, my mom lives there. My brother lives there. Uh, they were, There would be people to support her there, right? Yeah. If she went to Calgary, she would just be in Calgary with no friends, which is even worse. <laughs> Yeah, that's the other thing. Building, being able to build social networks is increasingly difficult because we do not have non-capitalist spaces. Like it's very hard to find a place to find community in cities now. Yeah. I mean, I'm experiencing that personally right now. Like I signed up for an improv class uh, last September because I was like, oh, I want to make friends and there's nowhere to make friends my own age for free. Right. So like, unless you're making friends at work, but I don't want to make friends with my people at work because I work in extremely capitalism friendly space right now. Not that improv is like the place to go um, for like a climate focus, but I need to build they a community. They are at least yes and people. Yeah. I, I just want to be fun. I, I was like, where can I go to have like a laugh with people, you know? And and like, even if you go to a community center and you want to take a class at a community center, that costs money. You know, you can't just like make conversation with people on the bus or at the library because that's weird and gross. I don't do that. <laughs> like if someone did it to me, I'd think it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's just another example of like, if we had more robust social systems that could allow people to connect, would probably make things a lot easier. Kristen. And like, as I'm thinking about this, sorry, what? Oh, no, go ahead. Carry on. <laughs> I was going to make a point of how it's like so much harder if you're also crossing like an international and language boundary, but. Oh, no, that is an excellent point. Like, it's so hard for like, because one of the jobs that I recently had, because I have so many, is I was working at a school where we taught English as a set, like English um, to, at the high school level. But we had to start with English, like at the basic level for a lot of our students who are here as like refugees or new immigrants. And gosh, it's hard. Like, <laughs> and and that's without like all of the racist uh like stuff going on in at the bureaucratic level that makes it harder you know like yeah no it's totally true um i was in french training recently and it's exhausting <laughs> <laughs> and you already like sort of speak french <laughs> yeah yeah it's been like a what 20 year process at this point <laughs> so you could just move to montreal for a bit uh, I feel like in Montreal, you probably wouldn't learn that much French because there's so many Anglophones. That's true. You would have to move to like rural Quebec. <laughs> there is Kyla. There are plenty of French speakers in my immediate vicinity, but they all also speak English. <laughs> and I'm scared. <laughs> I think every building should have like a community garden and we should all only be working two days a week. So we have time to like take care of our gardens and like meet your neighbors. But that would be so bad for capitalism that <laughs> like <laughs> any final thoughts about the book, Kristen? 
Um, I think the book is fantastic. Definitely go out and read it. I'll give you another recommendation if that whets your appetite for even more climate migration information. Nomad Century is another really good book. It's more focused on international climate migration. So it's a bit of a different perspective. And the focus is more so on making the argument that people moving is natural. And I mean, I think as this book illustrates really perfectly, people are really reluctant to do so for a lot of reasons. So we should be encouraging it and it makes our societies better. So if you want, you could read those two as a pair. I'd really recommend it. <laughs> nice. And we're going to be putting out another book club episode uh, in our little off season here. Uh, if you guys want to read it with us, it's huge. Uh, I, I have my copy. Uh, it's a oh, are, we doing the, are we doing Naomi Klein next? I thought that's what we were doing, um, but I can, I can pivot if you want to do something else. I thought we were doing How to Be a Climate Optimist because you already read it. I have not already read it, but I would love to. Let's do that, Kristen. Let's read How to Be a Climate Optimist. So if anyone wants to read along with us, that's what we're doing next, and we'll be discussing it in um, probably a month. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent.